Hello, and welcome to Somatic. In this episode, we're going to talk about the philosophy of idleness. This probably seems like a weird topic for a podcast dedicated to stories on sport, physical activity, physical culture, and the active body. But I would argue that we need to be just as critical about our assumptions of idleness as we are about things like sport and physical activity. We need to question what we are assuming when we use words like inactivity or laziness. We need to understand how we are socialized into thinking about these things in particular ways. For example, when we talk about this notion that exercise is medicine, what are we assuming then about inactivity? Are we privileging one form of social relating, one form of activity over another? Because if we keep thinking this way, we eventually will start to wonder if there is perhaps something potentially positive in idle forms of freedom. And maybe there are some forms of idleness that can be reimagined and rethought as forms of freedom. In this episode of Somatic, I talk with philosopher Brian O'Connor, who recently wrote a book on philosophies of idleness. O'Connor discusses the ways in which Western philosophers have studied and understood idleness in relation to their conceptions of the world. I also ask him about the relations between idleness and things like sport, exercise, and play, and whether revisiting sport through notions of idle freedom can also help us rethink the role that sport should play in our society. The following are excerpts from my interview with Professor Brian O'Connor of University College Dublin during the summer of 2019. Professor O'Connor is the author of the recent book titled Idleness, a Philosophical Essay, published by Princeton University Press. So my name is Brian O'Connor. I'm a professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. I work in a few areas of philosophy, although I think in some way they all intersect I work in what's broadly called the area of social philosophy, which deals with questions of social institutions and how we make sense of them, how we justify them, how we criticize them. Among those social institutions that are interesting to me are the institution of work, of responsibility, of autonomy. But I also have a background in the history of German philosophy, and in many ways that's what what brought me to an interest in social philosophy because, you know, much I think of what we think of as social philosophy comes from the German idealists, Kant very prominently, and then in the 20th century, the Frankfurt School. So it was, you could say that the book on idleness that we're going to talk about today is very much a product of all of those interests coming together. I was looking at the question of autonomy in those German philosophers I've worked on for quite some time. And I noticed in one of Kant's texts a particular and passing criticism of idleness, which struck me as curious, but not very significant. But for some reason it, it nagged at me and I began to try to figure out what made him want to criticize idleness. And I tried to make some sense of that and noticed that he wasn't the only philosopher from this period who had a kind of concern about idleness. And from that, the book developed. In the interview, I asked Professor O'Connor to discuss the arguments in his book. 
in his philosophical analysis of this question of idleness as a potential form of human freedom. The music you are hearing in the background was performed and recorded by myself for this episode. It is kind of my hastily made musical representation regarding this question of idleness, and is now here mixed with the audio from the interview. During the interview, I first asked Professor O'Connor to summarize the general argument of his book. Well, I think what I'll do is just really talk about the big, the big idea, because there are lots of component parts. But the key argument is this. It seems to me, and I don't say this is a universal thing, but it seems to me that many people find the idea of idling rather positive and agreeable. They like the idea of having nothing to do, not being weighed down by responsibility, of being free of competitive pressures, of being free of timetables and deadlines, uh, and effectively having their own space, their headspace to themselves. And what's very curious is that there are a lot of philosophers who worry about that desire and who want to encourage us to think that it's the wrong desire to have, that it's not worthy of beings like us, that it stands in the way of a lot of different goods that are open to human beings that are actually far more important than the pleasures of idling. And among those goods are making the very most of ourselves, of work, of making ourselves useful to society, and in some sense rising above the undignified level of natural creatures who know no better than to idle whenever the opportunity arises. So the book was an effort to figure out why the philosophers took such a strong view against idleness. And the philosophers I looked at primarily were Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, and then to try to suggest that their arguments actually don't work that well and what those philosophers really do are just rowing in behind social convention and not really establishing anything that is compelling. I didn't come to the conclusion that some people would like me to have come to, which is that we should idle. You know, it isn't a book which is there a sort of a charter for idlers who, you know, want to completely change their lives. My main focus was to put pressure on philosophical theories of why idleness is bad and actually to rescue it in a positive way in that respect. One of the themes that I felt I had to tackle in the book was that of boredom. Because there are people who say, if you're idle, you will be bored, and therefore idleness is intrinsically bad. Of course, in a way, that, that's right if people don't know how to idle. And the socialization story comes back again. You know, if you train people very well from early time to perform tasks, in a way that's what school education is about. All of these, you know, all these tasks that are set by teachers, to some degree are contributing to the education in a particular subject area for the, for the children. But more broadly, it's training people to be task-oriented. And in a way to understand proper activity as task-oriented. And most of us internalize that as we're supposed to, that's what the, the training is all about, and therefore find idleness quite a challenge when we have a lot of free time. One of the things I wanted to tackle was, was whether this is just a byproduct of socialization or whether it's natural. And, and as, as you, you know, 
anyone listening will guess, I, I went down on the side of socialization. Trained workers don't know how to idle. That's, that, that's, that's, uh, that, that means they're well trained and they experience the idleness as a, as a miserable boredom. There are very many studies now of how even people's vacation time is beginning to fall apart, which is really extraordinary. You would think that in this day and age where we work so much, where we're never away from, in a sense, sources of work thanks to our ICT, you'd think that people would, would want vacation more than ever, but there are many people uh, in a notable percentage of people who try not to take vacation or if they take vacation uh, can't wait to get back to work and I think that's again because given this free time they just don't know what to do with it. In a chapter in the book O'Connor engages with the notion of play, a voluntary intrinsically motivated activity often distinguished from seriousness. He engages with the notion of play as a positive form of freedom in modern society. Since Johann Heisinger's book Homo Ludens, people have studied play as a cultural construction. But in his book, O'Connor specifically analyzes the works of two thinkers to study this idea of play as a form of idle freedom superior to work. He studies the works of the 18th century German philosopher Friedrich Schiller, and the 20th century German-American philosopher and theorist Herbert Marcuse. Well, it's uh, the work of, of the German philosopher, poet, dramatist Schiller that really highlights what seemed to him, and probably rightly, the forgotten notion of play. So he's writing at the end of the 18th century. And he looks to his ideal civilization, which is the Greeks. And what's very striking about the Greek art that is uh, that continues to be celebrated is the way it captures the human form it it likes the human body it likes to portray the human body uh, often in the middle of sporting activity you know discus throwers or, or even boxers and uh, there's a sense in which the Greeks Schiller thought had got had got it right because unlike the more prudish era uh, of, of in which he lived, there was nothing shameful about showing a body in action. In fact, the body was so beautiful that it, that it seemed to have a spiritual quality. It wasn't just muscularity and so forth. And Schiller thought the Greeks knew how to play. They respected that, In they, they, they understood that play was a way in which we could both express ourselves physically and emotionally. Now Schiller tried to learn a lesson for that for his time, which was that play brings about a certain kind of discipline because it's not just random, it, it has a structure. In a sport, of course, it has rules, but even a less organized form of play has some kind of parameters. And Schiller thought, well, that's how we get a sense of, of the law, of the sense of, of the structure of the law, which he believed was, was missing among his contemporaries. At the same time, it doesn't bring us too far. It kind of grabs hold of us in a way that we're able for because we can understand ourselves as physical beings. Schiller would wish, wish we would be more like moral beings, but that's a step too far in one, in one go. But we can understand ourselves as beings who can follow rules when we play. 
But it turned out that Schiller found the notion of play so appealing that actually the book turns out to be a defense of play and the hope that his contemporaries could be more like the Greeks who admired the body, admired sport. They are the inventors of the Olympics uh, and uh, in a sense they managed to synthesize human physical perfection with sort of a, a kind of beauty that isn't merely physical. He likes to contrast the Greeks with the Romans who he imagines, you know, saw the body as something that was ferocious and the, the Romans were debased. Their idea of sport was the Colosseum with human beings being ripped apart by each other, whereas the Greeks' notion was, a, was again a certain kind of bodily ideal of, of sporting virtue. So Marcuse wondered if we could solve the problem of alienated labour by looking at the notion of play. Alienated labour has a number of features, but one of them is that we become kind of automatons who can find no pleasure in the way in which we, we work. There's a, there's a view that working is destroyed by being constrained, you know, by being repetitive by being decided by uh, targets that exist outside the worker. And there's no creativity in it. There's no room for spontaneity. It's always something that in a sense, therefore belongs to someone else. Our job is just to, is to carry it out. And even works that, forms of jobs that look like they have high levels of freedom, ultimately conform to targets and objectives that are not the ones the worker designs. So play looks like some kind of bridge because play again in, 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 in sport that isn't you know excessively organized. I mean like professional sport now is clearly so incredibly organized that I think that many players on the field don't experience any freedom. They're so highly instructed by coaches and so on what to do. But the sort of the more open play that perhaps even children do best is, is a place where you can sort of, you can do the thing in the way that you want to do and your distinctive personality is, a, is evident in it. So you can see the different personalities of people in the way they, 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 they play among each other and so forth. The difficulty I had with that was that although that's a very attractive image and, a, and, a, and a certainly an image of human beings that are not alienated from themselves physically or, 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 or emotionally or spiritually, if you want to use that word. It was hard to understand how work could operate along those lines, because in the end, work is very task-oriented. And although many simple tasks can still have an element of, of one's own personality, the way one person makes bread might not be the same as the next person's, the idea of play seems to invite greater levels of freedom than task-oriented work allows. That was, that was my difficulty. So I, I thought Marcuse was onto something extremely appealing, uh, a, a very good way of re-employing Schiller's original idea about play. But I felt it wasn't successful as something that could ever really adequately replace the notion of work. There's a key point to keep in mind in terms of the relation between Marcuse's notion of play and Marx's theory. Marcuse was a German thinker whose work was influenced by Marx, 
and the works of Frankfurt School cultural theorists Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. But as O'Connor explains, Marcuse expanded from Marx by exploring the notion of play as a potential solution to the problem of alienated work under capitalism, and as potentially a form of liberated work in itself. In his 1956 book, Eros and Civilization, Marcuse engages with Schiller's notion of play in relation to critical theory, and he argues that play can be an attainable alternative kind of social relating, one kind that is all too often suppressed by the transactional and competitive attitudes that are rampant in a capitalist society. And there are many different phases in Marx's career, but in a way one thing that they all have in common is the idea that we one of the tasks of a good society is to, is to make work not feel like it's miserable, to design work in such a way, and to design workers in such a way that they experience freedom in their work. But really, there's nothing very radical about the kinds of work he has in mind. It's maybe more like the work of the, of the craftsman who, who has more control over the process, who certainly has skills and so forth. Uh, and it's perhaps a, a romantic image of, of work. But Marcuse pushes the model really beyond what might be recognizable to us. And in a sense, that's, that's a problem too, because at least in my case, my imagination wasn't able to keep up with Marcuse's because it took work into a sphere of play where I could no longer make sense of it. He is, he is somebody who goes uh, distinctly beyond Marx and, you know, even if you were to imagine the kind of society where Mark, uh, Marcuse's model would, would be the, the one that people lived by, although I'm not sure I can imagine that, it certainly wouldn't be a kind of regulate, highly regulated social state like Marx had in mind. It, it seemed more open-ended and expressive. I asked O'Connor to reflect on the issue of sport and exercise in contemporary society through the lens of his book on idleness and idle freedom. First thing I'd say is uh, there isn't any necessary sort of intrinsic opposition between a life of idleness and exercise. It all depends on what we take exercise to be. and. As somebody in the field, you'll know far better than me the, the, the very many different categories of exercise that exist. You know, from those who take their daily stroll to those who are pumping iron and, and really giving it their 110% uh, down in the gym. I think there's something, you know, it's very easy for me to take a, a view of the latter, which is this is a kind of activity that's really gone beyond what is consistent with good health has become an end in itself. I'm not saying it's unhealthy, but it's, it's an end in itself. It's often driven, it seems to me, by a certain kind of personal vanity, a response to archetypes of the body beautiful in our society today. I, again, I, I wouldn't want to say this is true of everyone, of course, but that kind of exercise is, is, is a particular phenomenon. And I know then another kind of exercise that's, that's extremely important, because you, you mentioned the socialization process, is organized sport. And, and of course, many young people uh, derive a huge amount of pleasure and learn how to work in teams in that, in that regard. I, I don't really have any criticism of anything people like doing. 
things that give people a kind of a, a, a sense of pleasure and a sense of freedom. And I, I think for many people, sport and moderate levels of activity all amount to that kind of experience. I, I don't see the position that I develop in the book as a kind of argument for idleness above everything else. In a way, the argument is for just various forms of, of freedom that we would call our own, something that's detached from societal competition, societal comparisons and emulation. So there are ways in which taking care of one's health might be regarded as, as very important if you want to, you know, enjoy the, 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 the advantages that idleness bring. I haven't thought much, or uh, I have to say, about, about sport, although I am somebody who actually enjoys sporting activity and, and indeed, indeed watching it. But I think that sport is a bit like music in, in this respect. It's, it's really wonderful when people want to do it, but it's also terrible when people don't. And there are always young people who hate their music lessons and hate, hate their, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the sport component of their education. They hate the structure, the discipline and, and so on. And, it, and in that respect, it's, it, it's, you know, it really is a kind of an oppressive uh, thing for them and it can frustrate others who who like those uh, activities because they can see only advantages you know the kind of expressivity you can gain from being a good musician or a good artist or a good tennis player or a, or a good member of a football team or something like that I think I think many people recognize that those are advantages but they can't be if you like advantages without reference to individuals who want to do them. You know, they become certain kinds of disadvantages if, if they just are imposed and are experienced as kind of a, a wretched discipline. O'Connor argues that there is something to the notion of play that can be a model for a more positive form of vital freedom. And he talked with me about this during the interview. I think it's a good model, and uh, I think I think it's a very plausible m model that, as you say, Schiller and Marcuse didn't quite themselves deliver on. In, in many ways, because they had a different agenda to the one I have. Schiller was wondering how we make a moral society, and Marcuse was one where he was trying to imagine how we make a society where, where work no longer feels like alienation. But if if we if we look at the parts of their analysis before they reach their conclusion, particularly Schiller's, I, I think what he has to say about play looks very much like idleness. It has a lot of the things that strike me, at least, as the elements that many people would think of when they think of what's attractive about idleness. It, you know, it's, it's unstructured. It doesn't have any objectives. It feels like doing what you want, therefore a certain kind of freedom from constraint and a, f a freedom from external pressures. So I think, I think play, play can be like that, playfulness if you like, the kind of capriciousness of playfulness can be like that.
I think it would be useful for this episode to conclude by reading some of the concluding thoughts written by O'Connor in his book. He writes that idleness involves a sense of acting in accordance with values we take to be our own, meeting our personal understanding of what we prefer to do. It is often appreciated as freedom from pressures that seem to want to turn us into human beings of a distinctive kind, requiring us to relate to others and indeed our own life stories in ways that appear empty yet supposedly right. Idleness involves no inner struggle in which happiness is subordinated to some higher principle or other. The case for idleness will depend on whether questions of freedom can be asked without framing the answers within notions of the type of people required by modern societies. The implications of such a shift are not insignificant. They point to the implausible sounding scenario in which the phenomena of usefulness, competitive social identities, or long-term discipline no longer form the outlines of our experience. A reappraisal of idleness is in this respect also criticism of those notions of freedom that work in favor of life determined in those ways. Okay, so that's the end of the uh, episode. Um, as Sam said at the beginning there, uh, idleness is certainly not a topic that first jumps to mind uh, when you think of uh, the physically active body, which is mostly what we talk about on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast called Somatic. Um, but just a fascinating lens through which to rethink how we consider um, being active, not being active, leisure, pleasure, practice of physical cultures in different ways. Um, the room to not condemn idleness, not necessarily to be uh, an advocate for idleness, but to give room for a time to be idle. Uh, it's just, I think, a really fascinating concept, and I'm so glad that we could include it as part of this uh, as part of this uh, podcast. Um, so that is it, as I said, for this episode. Um, actually, in a few weeks, Sam and I are going to be heading down to a conference um, that hopefully we can get some more material, some new interviews, some different topics to talk about, um, and come back with with a uh, you know a fairly regular out, regular output from some of those things. We'll see, um, but we will continue on making these episodes. It's a pleasure to make them, and it's a pleasure to know that people are still out there listening. Um, that means a hell of a lot to us. So uh, I'm glad you could be here for this episode and for all the ones that you've listened to. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, as always, you can do so. Um, at somaticpodcast at gmail.com or you can head over to our website somaticpodcast.com and uh, there's a, f- a form you can contact us through that form on the website there's a, a load of other materials up there blog posts to go with every episode um, some thoughts and musings on the philosophy behind this whole project um, some information about us if you're interested um, it really is a wealth of uh, a wealth of information that's up there um, so no matter how you want to use it uh, feel free to get in there and, 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 and take what you can and use what you can and um, and yeah if you want to reach out to us please uh, feel free to do so um, again always 
episode ideas, things you want to get out there, things you want to share. We are super open to that. So please do reach out. Um, but yeah, so for now, that just leaves me to say that this has been Somatic. Somatic.